Father, we are thankful for the church, and more than anything, we are thankful that the church is made up of people that you have rescued. We are here because of your great work. What an incredible thing that, that you, the, the creator of all things, the, the God of the universe, even though we turned our backs against you and rebelled against you and, and set ourselves up as your enemies, you have sent your Son in great humility to rescue us. God, thank you. You're so good to us. You're so good to us, far better than we deserve. And we ask now that in your continued grace, you would use your word to speak to us and to form us to be your people. Teach us to know you and to love you and to live together well as your people. We pray this in the name of Christ, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm excited because today we get to talk about the church. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. But uh, as we do so, we find that we're kind of at an odd moment for the church. Uh, God is doing some really amazing things, working in powerful ways. uh, But humans are doing some less than amazing things and running into some problems. And this actually happens a lot in the Bible. God does some incredible things, and then humans kind of uh, get to be in a little bit of trouble. Um, There's a great example of this in the book of Exodus Uh, you have God doing some just amazing things. I remember as a kid hearing all the stories about Moses and Pharaoh and and all the ways that God showed his power over all of creation. You hear uh, God sending, raising up Moses and sending him to rescue his people from slavery, that the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt and they're being subjected and and God is raising up and sending Moses to go and lead them out of slavery. But Pharaoh doesn't like this idea because he likes having all these slaves, and so he's trying to keep them there. But God is just doing these magnificent displays of power to show Pharaoh that there's no use in trying to fight him. And so, so God does these incredible signs through Moses and Aaron. He turns all the water in Egypt to blood, and then he sends a bunch of frogs, and he sends a bunch of gnats, he sends a bunch of uh, diseases on the cattle and boils on the people, and it, it's dark for three days. And then finally, in the end, because Pharaoh continues to be stubborn, finally he takes the life of every firstborn child in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh says, yes, okay, God is too strong for me. I cannot continue to do this. And he finally lets God's people go. And then, of course, uh, they are camped at the edge of the Red Sea. And this, this final, last, climactic part of God's rescue, they're, they're trapped there. And Pharaoh has changed his mind. He sends his army chasing after them. And there's nowhere for the people of Israel to go. And they're crying out, God, what do we do? And then God parts the waters of the Red Sea. And they go across on dry land. And when the Egyptians try to chase after them, God drops the waters back down and wipes out the Egyptian army. God's people are free at last, finally and completely free. I remember hearing uh, these stories as a kid and seeing the pictures. Maybe you saw the movie Prince of Egypt. And there's just this great deliverance of God's people. But then I remember one of the first times that I actually read it in the Bible for myself, reading through the book of Exodus, and and you get this this great uh, picture of God's rescue of his people, that he's so powerful and he has saved them from slavery in Egypt. He's sent them on their way. And God's people praise in Exodus 15, and then immediately, just a couple verses later, you hear that the people then are grumbling against Moses, and then chapter 16 begins, In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I remember reading this and thinking, Wait, what? You just saw the Red Sea part into two. You just saw God's deliverance like 
Like, I can only imagine being able to see with my own eyes and suddenly you're grumbling and complaining. You think suddenly God's not going to take care of you? God does amazing things and then immediately God's people are complaining. The passage that we have before us today in the book of Acts looks at first glance like it's going to be that kind of a story. This is how it begins. It says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so the work of God, the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So God's doing amazing things and then immediately there's grumbling and there's complaining alongside of it. And the word that's translated uh, complaining here is the same word that the Greek Old Testament, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for what the people of Israel did back in Exodus. So it looks like this is a repeat, a repeat of that same story. God does amazing things, and then God's people respond poorly. But we're going to look at this passage and see that, that this actually is going to break that pattern. This isn't going to be that same old story of God doing amazing things and then the people responding poorly and ending up in judgment. This is going to be a different kind of a story. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 today. And if you haven't already turned there, this would be a good time uh, to do so. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the pew racks, and it's found on page 1083 of of the pew Bible. So this is Acts chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 uh, today. So as we look at this text, we're going to see that that there's a problem that arises. We're going to see what's so bad about that problem. And then we're going to see the solution uh, to that problem. So let's look at this problem and see what's going on here. Verse 1 of Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So... The verse starts off with good news, right? The the church is growing. This is great. People are coming and putting their faith in Jesus. They're finding life in him. This is great. But that brings some bad news, too. There's an important ministry in the church that's being uh, neglected. We aren't told a lot about what this daily distribution uh, ministry was. Uh, In a later time period, we know that uh, the Jewish authorities had set up kind of an organizational uh, system of daily and weekly aid that included things like food and and necessary money and things like that. Uh, Widows in this time period would have had a difficult time providing for themselves, uh, especially perhaps uh, Christian widows who might have had estranged family relations, where families were the ones who would typically provide for widows, so this would have been a difficult thing for widows. Uh, But in any case, uh, the Christian community was apparently providing daily food to these uh, widows in need. But this system is apparently not working well, and especially for a particular segment within the church, probably a minority segment. So the verse makes a distinction between Hellenists and Hebrews, or Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Uh, Hellenistic Jews would have been uh, Jews that would have uh, been primarily Greek speakers, and they probably would have uh, adopted some of the other Greek cultural elements. Perhaps they liked Greek food, things like that, maybe Greek music, some other things like that. Whereas the uh, Hebraic Jews were Jews from this area right around Jerusalem and Judea, and they would have been primarily uh, Hebrew or Aramaic speakers. So there was a, there was a cultural divide here uh, to some degree. There's a cultural element to the problem. Although we'll see as we move forward in the passage, it's probably, it's likely that, that this um, oversight was not because of uh, cultural biases. It wasn't because of cultural hard feelings. Most likely, it was because of administrative issues. So what we're seeing here uh, early on is that the church is experiencing growing pains. But this really is a significant problem. I want us to see how significant this is. This is threatening what is special about the church. 
Remember what we heard back at the end of chapter 4, this incredible uh, description of the church. This is from uh, chapter 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So the issue of some widows being overlooked here is a threat to the special community life of the church. I mean, it said that they were one in heart and mind, but, well, that can't really be said anymore because there's divisions among them. There's complaining from one group to another group. They're not quite one in heart and mind anymore. That part of their community life is being threatened. And it was said that there were no needy persons among them because people would find out about the needs, they'd sell some possessions and liquidate some assets and provide for that need. Well, that can't be said anymore because there are now needy widows among them that are not being provided for. So this is a big threat to the church. It's a threat to the special community life that the church is experiencing. But there's another threat to the church here as well because Jesus has commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So they have been charged to be proclaiming the word of God. And that's what they've been doing. They've been preaching the gospel day after day after day. So this problem here could draw their attention away from the task that's been given them by Jesus. And so in verse 2, they say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, we've got to admit that it's possible for us to read this cynically, right? And say that the apostles are just saying, well, you know, table service, the ministry to the widows, that, that's beneath me. But we have to remember that these were men who had been with Jesus, and Jesus showed them powerfully that no act of service is beneath them. He got on the floor and cleaned their dirty feet, and he was the Lord. He was the Son of God himself. And if he is willing to do that level of menial service, that means that there's nothing that's below the dignity of the apostles. So this isn't about them saying, no, that's below me, that's below my pay grade or whatever. This is about them protecting the call on their lives to be ministers of the word of God. So the threat to the church's growing pains here is to the special community that there no longer can be said totally to be one in heart and mind. There can no longer be said that there are no needy persons among them. So there's a a threat to the community life of the church, but there's also a threat to the gospel shape of the church. Remember that uh, statement, that little uh, summary statement at the end of chapter 2 about the the life of the church, the gospel-shaped life of the church. It says this in Acts 2.42, Listen to the four things that they're doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So two of those things are about community life, about breaking bread, having meals together, and about fellowship, this this common uh, core bond that they have. So the community part is important, but we also see the importance of the teaching of the apostles, the ministry of the word, and prayer. And that's what the apostles were really charged with doing. And we see the priority of this for the apostles. As we look at uh, the narrative of the book of Acts, we see that Peter and John and the other apostles are proclaiming the word of God day after day after day. And God is blessing that ministry by bringing more and more people to put their faith in Jesus. So if the apostles have to add this other ministry, if they have to oversee the distribution of food to make sure that all the widows get equal portions and enough food, then their attention is going to be diverted away from the task that God has given them. Remember, this is an increasingly large church. This is over 5,000 believers at this point. So I I want you to see this this single verse here, 6-1, carries a significant weight to it. There are growing pains that are threatening the church. With, With the increasing numbers, 
which is good because it means that there are more people putting their faith in Jesus and finding life in him. With the increasing numbers, though, what's special about the church is in danger of being lost. This has been a unique community that's uniquely and powerfully shaped by the gospel. They're one in heart and mind. They have a common life together in Jesus. They're meeting each other's needs. They're praying together. They're proclaiming the word of God. And then this issue comes along, and it's threatening to ruin what's special about the church. So think about it like this. Uh, there's a, a pizza restaurant in Anchorage called the Moose's Tooth. And this is, I had probably the best pizza I've ever had in my life at the Moose's Tooth Pizza. I, I went there for the first time when I was in junior high, and it left an indelible mark on my memory. I was there with a school group, and, and uh, some of the cooler teachers took us there, and so we felt pretty cool going to this place. It had a great atmosphere and just incredible pizza. I never had pizza before with artichoke hearts on it. And you might kind of like turn your nose up at that and think, well, that's not something to have on pizza. But listen, if you've had pizza with artichoke hearts at Moose's Tooth, you would love it, even if you don't like artichoke hearts, because that's how good it is. So great atmosphere, kind of Alaska hip sort of a place, great pizza. Well, we went again uh, later on. Um, I took my girlfriend Emily there when I was in college, when we were up there for Christmas break. And again, the pizza was incredible. Uh, we went again later on, and my, my brother-in-law went for the first time. He actually took a picture of the pizza because it was that good and did the whole Instagram thing and all that. But as they've gotten more popular, they've had some issues. Uh, the last time I was there, the tables were so crowded together that I couldn't push my chair back without hitting the chair of the guy behind me. And the table to the side of us was probably only 18 inches or so from the edge of our table. It was crowded. We had to wait half hour or an hour or something like that, which is pretty significant if you're in Alaska because that just doesn't happen that often. So there's a huge wait. You're crowded together tables. And the problem is it's kind of suffered, right? The last time my, my family went there, my parents went there, they were in such a rush and everything that not only did they have to wait, not only were they so crowded in the atmosphere of suffering, but their pizza was undercooked and doughy. So the one thing you go there for wasn't there. See, what had made the Moose's Tooth so special, what made it a wildly popular restaurant was because their atmosphere was great and their food was amazing. But as they were growing, those things were lost. It was now just a crowded place, and you couldn't even count on the pizza being excellent anymore. It might be undercooked. That's the threat to the church. The church is a special community. They are shaped by the gospel, drawn together, one in heart and mind, everyone's needs being met, uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, praying together daily, and God is blessing this ministry. But, but growth is making that less easy now. They've got some growing pains, and, and that means that this is a crucial point, a crucial juncture for this uh, young church. What they do as they're experiencing these growing pains now and these structural challenges has a lot of bearing on their long-term health and their long-term sustainability. So the questions we, we read as we see this problem, the questions we ask are, well, are they going to lose the centrality of the gospel? Are they going to lose the, the mission focus that Jesus has given them? Are they going to lose the close community connections that have made this church so special? Are they going to split off into factions and have one ethnic group and another ethnic group? What's going to happen to this young church? And the church today is, is often faced with similar situations. Where there is growth and where there is change, there's always a threat of hurt feelings. And it's very easy to lose sight of what is most important. One commentator says it like this. He says, Every group of Christians that tries to practice true community will sooner or later encounter problems in the very areas of their strength in community life. And at one level, that's really encouraging to me because it's saying, listen, if something is hard in community life, well, that's a normal thing. That's going to happen to every group of Christians that are trying to live well together in community. 
But the problem is, sometimes it's common that when those challenges to community life arise, it's easy to give up on the church. I think this spans all age ranges, but I think it's a particularly pronounced problem with emerging adults. I talked to a lot of people when I was in my 20s, and, and they, were, they loved Jesus, and they were passionate about the gospel. They are passionate about social justice and things like that. But they were really wary of the church. And the church just seemed uh, too institutional, uh, too broken. There was too much bad history uh, from their childhood or growing up or whatever it was. There, there was too much that just wasn't quite right to them about the church. So they're wary of the church. It's, they, they long for, for community. They have a longing for, for belonging, for being part of the kind of community that's described in the early chapters of Acts. They, they want that deep community connection. But, but then they look at the church and, and they see that it sometimes has problems and issues. And it, to them, it's, it's not always obvious how you can live in true gospel-shaped community within the local church. And so it's common to hear statements like, I love Jesus, but you know, I just don't really like the church. But the problem is that that's missing the whole point of what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are part of the church. You can't say you love Jesus without loving the church. The church is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ. They're, they're inextricably linked together. Jesus loves the church. It is his church. We have to remember that God has given us the church as a gift to us. It's the place where we can grow together to become like Jesus. It's the place where we together testify to the gospel. So the first thing I want you to see here is that this is encouraging. This Don't give up on the church. I mean, you guys are here on a Sunday morning, so probably you haven't given up on the church. But, but I think there's a temptation to, to look at the institution, look at the messy stuff, and say, well, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's worth it. But this is saying, no, when the hard stuff comes, there is a solution. So we see even in a significant problem like this where there's the possibility for, for ethnic divides or, or cultural divides, where there's possibility for hurt feelings, for lost trust and leadership, there's lots of potential for harm here. They could lose everything that's special about the church. And yet even then, God is going to protect them. And that's the solution that we're going to see. The problem here is that there are growing pains. They're threatening what's special about the church. But there is a solution. Look with me at verses 2 through 6 of chapter 6. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So again, the apostles understand the priorities that God has given them. They are to be ministering in the word and devoting themselves to prayer. And so they see that they can't add this extra area of ministry while undertaking well that commission to continue to preach the word of God and proclaim the gospel. But of course, they can't just allow this to continue to happen. It's not right that these Hellenistic uh, Jewish widows are not being taken care of. So something has to be done about this. They can't just say, hey, we're busy with preaching the word and we're busy with prayer. We can't take care of this problem. No. So they propose a, a simple uh, solution here to set up a team of leaders who can oversee this ministry. 
And notice that they take care to make sure that they're getting the right people to lead this ministry. This isn't just about kind of like picking the, the, the most popular people or the most successful people or the mo- most uh, smart-looking people. This is about having godly character. Verse 3 says they're to have a godly reputation. They're to be filled with the Spirit. They're to be filled with wisdom. And that's a good reminder for us, too, as a church today, that, that as we choose our leaders, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who are filled with God's Spirit and, and whose, whose wisdom is matched by that. So full of wisdom, full of uh, God's Spirit, not just kind of the people that you'd pick in a, in a kind of a high school student council election kind of thing, the most popular people, the best-looking people. Now, this is about godly people who have wisdom and godliness filled with God's Spirit. This is one of the reasons that we try here at our church to maintain a rigorous process when we do select elders. And, and I want you to, to be praying for the nominations board. This is the team that's um, charged with, with um, uh, having leadership positions, filling leadership positions, and having, bringing them before the church uh, for approval. So be praying for this group. This is a really important thing. Who we have as leaders is, is a vital part of church uh, health. In any case, we see in Acts 6 here that, that seven men are presented and here we get a bit of a surprise, and, and you and I wouldn't see this from, from looking at the names here, uh, but scholars who study this kind of thing um, suggest that, that these are probably Hellenistic Jews. These are all Greek names, and at the time, um, even uh, Hebraic Jews would have had a, a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, and also a Greek name, and maybe another name as well. Uh, but these names weren't popular among the uh, Hebraic Jews. So these probably, it's likely, although not 100% sure, but it's likely that all seven of these men were from the wronged group, from the harmed group. They were probably all Hellenistic Jews. If you think about it, that actually makes sense because they would have been best equipped and best positioned to meet the needs of their own widows since uh, relationships tend to go along the most easy social lines. But we see here that the, the solution is not to split the church and say, okay, it's going to be the Hebrew Jews, Hebraic Jews over here and the Hellenistic Jews over there and just have a different church. That's not the solution because it's, we are one in Christ and the church is always united in Christ and not divided then by ethnic barriers. The church is for all who uh, confess the name of Christ. So the solution is not to split the church along those cultural lines, but to appoint ministers who can unite the church while making sure that the important needs are being met. And we see that this has a good solution, a good outcome. Verse 7, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So this tricky situation that could have gone really, really poorly has a joyful outcome. It's great. The problem solved, and rather than hurting the community, or rather than hurting the gospel centrality or the mission focus of the church, God has provided leaders so that the ministry is multiplied and it's growing rapidly, multiplying at the end. The church continues to grow. So here's what happened in this little uh, snippet here in chapter 6. The church has had rapid growth, and because of that, they don't have the, the structural support, the organizational support to maintain important ministries within the church. So in the face of these growing pains, God provides ministers who can, can sustain the ministry and uphold it, and then the ministry continues to multiply and grow. So we see in this little snippet in Acts 6. Now we can think of what's happening here uh, with the analogy of a trellis in the vine. And maybe you've heard uh, us talk a little bit about the, that kind of ministry analogy before, but the, the vine in this analogy is, is the growing church. 
And if you've watched vines grow, you know that they just they grow wild and fast. We, we had a, a little vine uh, growing in the backyard this past summer, and it, it grew everywhere. It, it was next to a fence, so it grew up and around the fence and twirled all around it and up and over. It was trying to go out the other side. Another few shoots of it were coming up and kind of taking over our rose bush and trying to go up and down it and all over it. Another shoot was trying to go over the grass and the, the lawn. Another was going a different direction. It was just going everywhere. It's growing wild and it's growing fast and it's growing with no organization at all. So for a vine to continue to grow into anything other than just a huge mess, it has to have some kind of support, something to guide it, something to give it structure. And that's what a trellis is designed to do. A trellis allows the vine to really thrive by providing it with the needed structural support that can then sustain it and guide it. Now, up to this point in the church's history, the church is new enough and young enough and small enough that it can survive okay without too much structural support, without much of a trellis. But as the vine continues to grow and it continues to branch out and continues to reach new people, it needs that trellis support of some type of organizational administrative structure. The church has experienced tremendous growth, and now they have to have the structure to sustain that growth and to allow it to continue to grow well. That's why this uh, appointment of leaders is so important here in Acts 6. Now, this is a really uh, helpful corrective uh, for us, I think, because it's it's easy to get turned off by the church structure stuff. If there's anything that that kind of adds to the feeling of of, uh, at least emerging adults of um, the church might not be worth it, it's seeing bureaucracy in the church. So, uh, If your Bible has um, headings over the chapters, mine does. It says the choosing of the seven over uh, chapter six here. Well, you could actually call that the first church committee or the first church board. And and really, there's nothing exciting. I don't know of anyone who really gets excited when we start talking about church committees or church boards and things like that because it seems like, well, it just seems like it's it's bureaucracy, right? So it looks at, at one glance, it looks like, no, this is just humans muddying up an otherwise beautiful organization of the church by adding a layer of bureaucracy. That's not actually the case. This is actually God providing for the ministry so that they can have a healthy, thriving ministry and that they can actually multiply their ministry and continue to grow without just uh, becoming a disconnected mess. And now, this church, uh, this text, excuse me, doesn't say much explicitly about the activity of God. We don't hear too much of uh, explicit mention of God's name in this passage. But the reason that we're calling this whole series uh, in Acts God on the Move is because God's hand is everywhere in this book. So if you look at our passage, the most obvious place where we see God at work is in the growth of the church. So we would be, we'd do well to, remind, to remember what uh, Paul had reminded the, the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about uh, the divisions that they're kind of going. Some want to go after Apollos and some want to follow him and all this. And he's saying, no, no, you've got it all wrong. This is what he says. What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. So this church in Jerusalem is growing, and and when they're growing, what that means is that God's hand has been at work. So in verse 1, we see the number of disciples is increasing. The message there is that God has been increasing his church. Again, in verse 7, the word of God spreads. What that means is that God has been sending out his word so that more and more people would hear. 
Again in verse 7, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, or it, it multiplied. Again, what that means is that God has been growing the church. So that's where we see God's hand most obviously in this text. But, but even in the seeming mundane stuff of solving this problem that has arisen in the church, even there we perceive that God's hand is in it. I want you to think about that. This could have gone very, very differently. This issue with the, between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews could have been very, very messy. This could have caused relational divides that would have never healed. This could have caused the people to completely lose trust in their leaders. This could have made them question the motives of the other group. And it could have really led to a schism in the church, a split where, where this group is not going to talk to that group ever again. And, and there is going to be a church split. Or on the other hand, they could have chosen the wrong leaders. They could have chosen people that weren't filled with the Spirit. They weren't even Christians that were just happened to be there and happened to be willing to serve. And they could have led the church down uh, in a poor ministry and continued uh, the problems of the, the administrative problems that they felt earlier. Or on the other hand, the apostles themselves could have said, well, we have to take on this ministry ourselves. It could have diverted their mission focus and the whole church could have lost its uh, gospel centrality and its mission focus. But none of that happened. This could have been really bad, but none of that happened. There's no blame casting, there's no politics, and there's nothing else. The, the apostles recognize that there's an issue. They work to delegate responsibility and to resolve that issue, and they continue to pursue God's call, and the church continues to grow. Here's what this shows. It, it shows that God is guiding the church. I mean, that's why this is different from the Exodus. In, in the next Exodus, we saw you know, God does this amazing thing to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt through Moses. And then the people grumble and complain. And they end up spending 40 years in the wilderness because they continue to grumble and complain. But this is a different story than that. This breaks the pattern of that because God is guiding the church and he's walking alongside them and he's being gracious to them. He's providing for them at every step of the way. That's why this grumbling, this complaining is quickly resolved. And rather than, than spending 40 years of, of uh, toiling in the wilderness with doing nothing, they're increasing rapidly. They're multiplying the church and the number of believers. To me, this is a huge encouragement. See, when we're, when we're tempted to uh, despair because things can get messy in the church or things are not totally straightforward, we, we have to see that, that God is the one who grows his church and God is the one who guides his church. God provides for his church at every step of the way. And here's the great joy for you and me. We get to be part of this. That passage that we read together from 1 Corinthians 12 says that God has put all of the parts of the church together just as he wanted them to be. What that means is that you belong. You're a vital part of the church. No one can say, I'm too strong to need the church. And no one can say, I'm too weak to really be part of the church. No, you are a child of God chosen in Jesus to be part of this wonderful community of saints. So I want you to see two things. I want you to see, on the one hand, that, that God is working powerfully to change the world. He is growing his church. He's, more and more people are finding life in Jesus. God is working powerfully to change the world. But I also want you to see the second thing, that, that God is doing that through ordinary people like you and me. He's doing it through ordinary people like you and me who are filled with the extraordinary power of God's Spirit to be able to join him in his work. 
Now, I know that many of you have a heart for those who don't yet know Jesus. A few weeks ago, we had a basket up here at the front, and I asked you to write on an index card the name of someone uh, that's, that God has put on your heart who doesn't yet know Jesus, who's not yet a follower of Jesus. And, and you guys filled that basket. And I'm so encouraged because of what it means is that your hearts and your heads are turned out toward those who need Jesus, and you want them to know him like you do. Now, if you're if you're here and, and you don't yet know Jesus, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this might sound kind of weird uh, to you, but, but you have to know our heart on this. Uh, Jesus is, is amazing. He, he has done everything for us. We were, we were lost and helpless apart from him, but he has given us life. He, he has rescued us. From, we've gone from death to life now in him. And so we want everyone to have that same experience. We want for you what God has given uh, to us. Uh, so, so we're praying, we're glad we're here, and we're praying that God would confirm this message uh, of truth in your hearts. But I want you to think about those, the, the name that you wrote down on that little index card. I want you to imagine what it would be like for that person that's on your heart to put their faith in Jesus and find life in him. And think about that whole stack of cards. What if more and more of those people starting finding life in Jesus. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? And what, what life and vibrancy would that add to our community of faith here to be able to rejoice together, to celebrate the incredible things that God has done for his glory, not for our glory, but for his glory, that, that he would rescue more and more people and bring life to more and more people in Jesus. It's an incredible thing. Here's why there's hope of that happening. Because the God who greatly multiplied, who rapidly increased the number of disciples of Jesus in Acts 6 is still at work today. That's why there's hope of this. We have hope now as they did then because God is the one who grows his church. God is the one who guides his church. It's never hopeless. No one's ever too far to be rescued by God. We hear stories of this. You've got to go talk to people who felt like they were way too far away from God or, or someone that, that knows someone who just seemed like, well, there's no chance that they are ever going to come to faith. But, but God works powerfully to draw people to himself, to rescue them from darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of the Son he loves, the kingdom of light. It's never hopeless because it's not in our power. If it was up to our power and our persuasion, then it would be hopeless. Or at least it would be for me. Some of you are more persuasive and you're better with words and stuff like that. But for me, I know that I don't have the power to bring someone to faith in Christ. But God's power is infinitely above what we can even imagine. I love what Paul says. He says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's where the hope for the church is. That's where hope for any of us is. We were lost, but God, in his immeasurable power, in his unfathomable grace, has chosen us in Christ and has rescued us. May God powerfully work in our community, in our time, to bring him more and more glory by having people confess Christ and put their faith in him. Please pray with me. God, we hear the, uh, the issues that the early church faced, and, and there's some level of relief to us in that because we know that we're not perfect people and we know that we have issues here and there. But then we see how you provide for your church and we are overwhelmed by your grace for us. And God, we, we hear of the, the number of disciples increasing, the word of God growing, the disciples greatly increasing, rapidly increasing, multiplying. And God, there are people that, that are on our hearts that, that don't know you yet. They're not following Jesus. They're not walking with you. And we so desperately want them to find the life that we have found. 
So we ask that in your grace, you, our powerful God, the one who brought 3,000 people to faith when Peter preached one day, would you again come and send your spirit to enliven hearts and minds, to draw people who are far away from you to you through Jesus. And in your grace and in your mercy, may you deign to use us, imperfect as we are, to point people to you. May we testify boldly to the grace that we found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.